scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 51. I want to invite you to find that on the screen before you. You can turn in your Bible to Psalm 51. If you would, please stand with me as we come to God's Word. This is God's Word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Lift your hands with me as we come to God. Father, we ask that this would be no ordinary moment for us, but that this would be a turning point that your spirit would work through your word and change our hearts. We pray that addictions would be addressed by the good news of your grace. We pray that stubbornness would be melted by the good news of your grace. We pray that our waywardness would be corrected and that we would come back to the path. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in here this morning and give us exactly what we need, no matter where we're at on the spiritual spectrum, no matter what we wrestle with today, no matter how we are afflicted or grieved. We pray that you would minister to us and that Jesus would emerge in this time as being absolutely, unmatchingly precious to our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name as your people and we say together, amen. You may be seated.
celebrity apologies have become a sort of new genre on our screens. It seems like every news cycle there is some new story in which someone is apologizing for something that they said or something that they have done. And most of the time when we, when we hear these apologies, they come across to us as mere formalities. They're, they're half-baked attempts by PR uh, professionals to try and salvage someone's reputation and to address aggrieved followers. Most of the time when we hear these apologies, it comes across as nothing more than damage control, an attempt to make sure that the bottom line isn't affected because people stop giving their business. We see these insincere apologies, and most of the time they come across as formalities. And we most often get this this combination, this sort of cocktail of insincerities. We see this cocktail that's comprised of blame shifting, minimization, rationalization, and excuses. And they show up in a series of vague statements that sound like this. Mistakes were made. I deeply regret what has taken place. I'm sorry that people were offended. This happened a long time ago. This is not who I really am. I was ambient tweeting. We see a deep reluctance and refusal in people to take responsibility, to own their failures and their moral misdeeds. But here's the question for us this morning. As nice as it is, as comforting as it is, as satisfying as it is sometimes to look out there and to blast those wretched sinners out there, what is it that you do with your sin? What do you do with your moral misdeeds? What do you notice as a pattern in your life when you are caught red-handed? in sin. Now listen, I raise this phenomenon of celebrity apologies for a very important reason. We are at risk of becoming disciples of the culture as it relates to how we deal with sin. We're at risk. Here's the deal. If we do not take the whole counsel of God, we will accept the whole counsel of the world. And we will deal with sin in the same ways. We will rationalize it. We will minimize it. We will excuse it. We will psychologize it. And we will normalize it. And we will die because of it. We must be disciples of the Lord. And we must take his whole counsel as it relates to the way that we deal with our sin. Because here's the deal. If you're unfamiliar this morning, if you find yourself in here uh, in the church and you're maybe coming back for the first time in a long time, or uh, is this your first time ever in a church? I want you to know that we're really glad you're here. There's no other place we'd rather you be than here with us this morning. Right, church? But I want to bring something to your attention right now, and it's this. One of the ways that you can see the distinctiveness of the Christian faith 
It's in the difference between the way that the Christian faith teaches us to deal with our sin and the way that the culture teaches us to deal with our sin. This is a distinct difference. Now, we've been walking through a series this fall called Saved. We're trying to understand what is known as the doctrine of salvation. And we opened up with this image, this image of a mountain range that is known as union with Christ. And each week we've been going up, ascending into the mountain range that is union with Christ to ascend various peaks, such as calling, regeneration, faith, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of these theological terms that we find in the Bible. And this morning, we are going to explore that mountain peak within that mountain range that is known as repentance. Somebody say repentance. Now, it might sound like a dusty old church word to you, repentance. It sounds like something maybe your grandparents would say. Repent. You see it on the signs of people down on the National Mall. Repent on the sandwich boards, on that little truck that drives around the mall. Repent. Repentance may sound like a dusty old church word to you, but my hope this morning is that by the Spirit's help, this word and this concept will be resurrected in your mind, will be resurrected in your life. And here's why. Here's why I long for that. Here's why I'm bringing this to you this morning. Because repentance is as essential for salvation as faith. Repentance is as essential for salvation as faith. Repentance is not nearly as popular as faith, but it's every bit as necessary for our salvation. Here's the deal. Before God brings a person to glory, he brings them to repentance. If you are going to make it to that land called glory, then you must walk over the road that's called repentance. There is no such thing as knowing God without knowing repentance. If you are a stranger to repentance, you are a stranger to God. If you're unfamiliar with repentance as a way of life, then you are unfamiliar with the God who is life itself. Now, you might get Batman without Robin, but you can't have salvation without repentance. You might get Tom without Jerry, but you can't get salvation without repentance. You might get Bert without Ernie, Simon without Garfunkel, Hall without Oates, and Jazzy Jeff without the Fresh Prince, but you cannot get salvation without repentance. So we're going to ascend today, this mountain peak called repentance, and we turn to a classic text on repentance in Psalm 51. And what we're going to see this morning as we, as we ascend this mountain peak is we're going to look at the repentant heart and the heart of repentance. The repentant heart and the heart of the repentance. Here's what I want you to see. Aside from, in addition to the essential nature of repentance for salvation, if you're going to understand the doctrine of salvation biblically, you must understand repentance. I not only want you to understand 
what repentance is, but I want you to understand what repentance looks like. And I want to debunk for you faux repentance. Faux repentance. In other words, I don't want you to think that you are repentant when you're not. I want you to wrestle with this. Why? Love. Love. It's love. So let's look at our first point where we see the repentant heart. Now, at the heading of this psalm, Psalm 51, we are given an editorial note as to the background of this psalm. And it says this. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a maskil or song of David. Okay? To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is the context. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the biblical story, let's refresh. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, it tells us that at the time when kings normally go out to do their battling, David, King David, stayed home in Jerusalem. And while he was at home in Jerusalem, he wanders out onto his rooftop at night and he gazes upon a woman bathing. And his lust is incited. And what he does is he abuses his power and he calls for Bathsheba to be brought to him. And, 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 and his servants, when they hear this request, they say, is not this Bathsheba the wife of Uriah? But this man and his greed and lust for power and exercising his power over the vulnerable will not be deterred. And he brings this woman and he violently assaults her. It is not mutual. This is a woman who is taken advantage of, who has no ability to resist this powerful man. And afterward, he's pretty satisfied with himself. He sends her home. He thinks, I got away with that. And then word comes back that she's pregnant. And then he starts to scramble. When the wife becomes pregnant, Bathsheba, her husband comes back from war. There's a lull in the battle. And David, in a deceptive way, tries to get the man uh, to buddy up to him. He gets him drunk for the purposes of trying to conceal his sin. He gets the man drunk and encourages him to go home and enjoy his wife. So that it will appear that the coming child is his. But this man is so righteous, he's so upright, that he will not enjoy pleasures while his comrades are out fighting the battle of the king. So David plots his assassination, and he has the man murdered. He thinks that he's dealt with it, and afterwards, he forces this woman that he has violated to come and be his wife. As if it wasn't bad enough what he initially did, he makes her have to live with him. Then, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we get God's response. The end of chapter 11 simply says, but David greatly displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. And then God sends his prophet, Nathan, to David, who was blind to his sin, 
He was blinded. And the prophet tells him a story about this powerful man who has all that he could ever hope for. And when he gets a visitor, he instead chooses to take advantage of a weaker man. He has all these flocks and herds and all these riches. And when he gets a visitor, instead of pulling from his riches, he takes the one little dear ewe lamb of a poor man. He takes it from that man. And David is enraged. This man should be smoked. And Nathan says, you're the man. You are, David. You're the man. Prophetic courage confronts evil power. But in, but in a, remarkable, a remarkable change, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And now what we have in Psalm 51 is David's confession. This is the result of that prophetic confrontation where sin is brought before this man, where his sin is brought before him. And in Psalm 51, we see David's heart spilling forward to us. And we begin with verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's response when he finally realizes his sin is he turns. The repentant heart, the first thing you need to know about what repentance is, is it is turning. Not just turning, though. It's turning from sin to God. Specifically, turning from your sin to God. Sin is leaving, the, it's leaving God and going off into the far off country. But repentance is coming back home. Sin is laying on death's bed, having the dream that you can experience life without God. It's that deceptive dream. Repentance is awaking from that dream and rising from that deathbed. This is what repentance is. It is coming back to the reality of the covenant Lord and his covenant love. Now, here's the deal. When you sin, there are three possibilities that you have. You ready? You can bury your sin, your sin can bury you, or you can repent. Three possibilities. You can bury your sin and try to hide it, minimize it, diminish the size of it, take away some of the ugliness of it. You can, you can try to, to polish it up a little bit. You can hide it from people and pretend like everything is okay, like it never happened. You can bury your sin or your sin can bury you. You can be loaded up with such despair and self-loathing and self-hatred and depression that you wallow in that place. And it promotes further sin. Or you can repent, you can turn and bring your sinful self honestly before the Lord. Now here's the thing. Most people... We got to clear up some confusion here, all right? We ready? You listening? Most people confuse repentance with mere regret. 
Most people confuse repentance with mere remorse. That repentance is just feeling bad. And most of the time it's just feeling bad because you got caught. But you can feel bad about sin and not be repentant. You can have remorse and not be repentant. You can have regret and not be repentant. Remorse and regret are not enough, frankly. And it's crucial that we drive down into repentance in this psalm. Why? Maybe I'm just being harsh. Maybe you come from the the school of thought or the experience of Christianity. That's the Old Testament. Let's get to the new. Well, let's get to the new. And let's go to Luke 13. Because I want you to hear it from Jesus. I know everyone likes the smooth and fluffy Jesus. But let's listen to some of the, the prickly Jesus, okay? I want you to hear Jesus from Luke 13. And this is what Jesus says to people who are pointing out the sins of others. They're saying, isn't it a good thing, Jesus, that those evil people over there got crushed? And this is what Jesus says to them. And he answered them, do you think that those sinful people over there were worse sinners than everyone else? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus? What what, what happened to the Jesus who's love? I like the Lionel Richie Jesus. He is love, and he's truth. He is the lamb, and he's in the lion. He is the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. Unless you likewise repent, you will perish. So it's important that we put our minds onto this theme right now. When we cruise through Psalm 51, we see what a repentant heart looks like. And I want to give you some warning signs. If you're still not convinced that you need to pay attention right now, I want to raise some things up. You might think you're repentant, all right? You may, you may be convinced that you're repentant. But look, if when confronted, you always defend yourself to the bitter end, you may not be repentant. If you're more interested in looking good than actually being good, you may not be repentant. If you are generally indifferent to your sin and its effects, you may not be repentant. If there is nothing in the ugliness of your soul right now that you currently despise, you may not be repentant. If you only want to talk positivity and you're unwilling to deal in the negativity that's within your own soul, you may not be repentant. If you are accustomed to regularly spinning the story and bending the details of the story in order to make yourself look good and your accusers look bad, you may not be repentant. Crucial today, right now, send up that silent prayer and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Help me to see in this very instant the life or death nature of repentance. Help me to see it right now and to repent. In this psalm, we see what a truly repentant heart looks like. And I'm just going to cruise through quickly just to raise some things. Look at verse 1. True repentance is grounded in the mercy of God in his covenant love. Not your good intentions. Not your well-meaning. None of this can be the basis for God to have mercy on sinners. 
that you meant well. God, I meant well. Have mercy. Wrong answer. That's sand. You can't build on it. But you can build on the covenant love of God. You can build on the mercies of God. You can build on the reputation of God that he is prone to retrieve the wanderer. That he welcomes the wayward. That he is good to those who are not good to themselves or anybody else. It's built on the mercy and covenant love of God. Verse 2. True repentance confesses the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Do you see in the text, David uses three words for sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Transgression is rebellion. It's, it's raised fist rebellion against God. I'll show you. It's, it's, it's in God's face. I do what I want to do. I call my shots. That's rebellion. That's transgression. Next is iniquity. Iniquity is used in two primary ways. It's deviation from a standard. It's, it's wandering from a path. And it's also used for a twisting, a, a, a bending of something. The twistedness of our desires, the twistedness of our longings, the twistedness of our actions, the twistedness of our thinking. It's iniquity. And then there's sin. Now, sin, you may have heard before, is a missing of the mark. And what that looks like in today's uh, modern context looks like this. There's a story of a man who was going down a dirt road. And he looks at this barn and he sees all these bullseyes with arrows right in the center of the bullseye. And he, and he pulls over. He says, I got to check this out. What's going on over here? He finds this man. He said, this is astonishing. What marksmanship you must have. And he said, well, there's nothing to it. What I do is I shoot my arrows and then I go and paint the bullseye around them. That's what our culture is accustomed to doing when it comes to our actions. I shoot my arrow of sexuality and then I paint the bullseye around it. I shoot my arrow of how I use my money and my resources and I draw my, my bullseye around it. But God establishes the bullseye and our arrows aren't even on the board. They're off in the woods somewhere. Sin is missing the mark. God has marked out what his image bearers should be about how they should live the life of love, how they should care for the creation rather than abuse it, how they should use their power, how they should engage their relationships, how they should love their wives, how they should love their children, how they should respect their husbands, how they should do their work rather than idolize their work and try to find their identity in their work. God has marked out the way that we were meant to be. All found wanting. We're all found wayward. At the end of it, we're all found with a shaking fist to God. That's, that's what David sees, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. There's no such thing as a little white lie. Sin is no, is no small thing. True repentance sees that. Full stop. Verse 3, true repentance expresses sorrow for sin and takes ownership for it. Look at the personal pronouns of verse 3. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Do you see what he's saying? His sin has become so ugly to him. He's mourning and lamenting his sin so much. The the evil of what he has done is circling through his mind. He senses the weightiness of it, the ugliness of it, the evil of it. And he mourns it. He laments it. Listen, you will never leave a sin that you do not grieve. If you don't grieve it, you'll never leave it. He grieves it. He sees it in its true colors. This is death dealing here. Verse 4, true repentance acknowledges the essential anti-godness of sin. What is sin? In its essence, it is anti-godness. It's againstness with respect to God. It doesn't mean that his sin has not impacted anybody else. He knows that it has. But what he's saying is that this is the essence of it. To sin against an image bearer ultimately is to sin against God. He acknowledges this. Verse 4, true repentance agrees with the righteous judgment of God with respect to my sin. You see, God, you, you begin to join God in your assessment of the sin itself. That you rightly deserve his displeasure and you are without hope save the mercy of Christ. I agree with your judgment, God. I don't resist your judgment on my sin. I don't try to put up a defense for myself. My inner lawyer doesn't come up and agree with me that I'm okay and that it's pretty unfair of God to judge me so harshly. No. True repentance agrees with the judgment of God on this sin of mine and what it deserves. Verse 5, true repentance recognizes both the fruit and the root of sin. That the acts flow from who I am. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. There's a difference. He acknowledges that it's not just what he does. It's who he has been and who he is. That is the problem. So that's why you can't just turn over a new leaf. That's why you can't just tidy up your moral life with a little bit of improvement and a little bit of discipline. Because it's about who you are, not just what you do. And he's recognizing that who he is is rotten. It's rotten. Verse 6, true repentance understands that God is after more than external acts of contrition. He's after our hearts. He teaches truth in the inward parts. You might be able to fool everybody else with feigning repentance on the outside. But God sees to the secret heart. And that's where he wants to instruct you. Verse 8, true repentance is coming to God with mournful hope that God will restore. Verse 10, true repentance comes to the Lord, listen to me, not just for forgiveness, but for restoration. True repentance comes to the Lord, not just forgiveness, not just for forgiveness of old sins, but for a restoration that will prevent future sins. Do you see that? He says, create in me a clean heart. He doesn't just want to get his ticket punched with forgiveness and go on being the same person he's been. He wants a new heart. Verse 12, true repentance comes to the Lord for a willing spirit to be killing sin. 
I want to be willing to be killing sin. I need a willing spirit because apart from the Lord's ministry in my life, I will not be willing to do anything but sin. He doesn't just come to God for disobedience. He comes to God for new obedience. Do you see that? He wants new obedience going forward. Verse 13, true repentance longs to be contagious and missional. Do you see that? Look at that. Look at that. He says, once I have been a student of repentance and renewal, I will be a teacher of the same. You see that? And you can't be a teacher of repentance unless you are a student of repentance. And you know what? A lot of people have been disaffected from the Christian faith because they hear a lot of teachers that aren't students of repentance. They're pointing out the sins of the people out there. They're always rebuking and correcting the people out there, and their lives are a hot mess. They're a dumpster fire on the inside. Your words will not be received until your repentance is more evidence than your rebukes of the culture. Now, here's the last one I'm going to say before I turn to the heart of repentance. Do you, are, you, are you beginning to see what a repentant heart looks like? It exposes all of our cheap shams that we try to pass for repentance. It's more searching and more demanding and more unnerving than we wanted to realize or admit. But verse 14, true repentance is not content with generalizations about sin. He names it blood guiltiness. That's what he has done. He's guilty of shedding another person's blood. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about repentance. It says, don't content yourself with a general repentance. It's your duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins, particularly. I know. It nails me too. Particular sins, particular. Oh, God, just forgive my sin today. No. Name them. Walk through them. Walk through your rap sheet. You must walk through your rap sheet if you're going to be able to receive the resume of Christ. Listen, you, you have to turn not just from sin in general. You have to turn from greed to the giver. You have to turn from your lusts to the lover. You have to turn from your fears to the protector. You have to turn from specific sins to a specific savior. Because you know why? Because God does not save in general. He saves specific people who name their specific sins and call on him for a specific mercy with reference to those specific sins. I name it. That right there is enough to put me on the hook of your wrath for eternity. But I'm calling on your mercy for this sin in my life. That's how you begin to get the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the ugliness. This is how you begin to hate it. And the surest sign that you have a growing love for Christ is that you have a growing hatred for sin. You can't abide it. You can't stand it. You can't have it in your, in your house. You can't be content with it. You want it gone. You want it out. It's your greatest rival. It's your greatest enemy. You fight it. You kill it to the death. We must turn to a particular savior, and that brings us to our second point, the heart of repentance. Listen. 
The bad news is that time will not heal your sin. Mere time will not heal your sin. Time without repentance will not heal sin. Moral improvements will not outweigh your sin. Sin is like lead to your good deeds that are like feathers. And you pile up the lead quicker than you pile up the good feathers. <laughs> to use an unhelpful image. <laughs> it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface, frankly. Time will not heal your sin. Good deeds will not outweigh your sin. Self-discipline will not overcome your sin. Good intentions cannot excuse your sin. The bad news is that you cannot make atonement for your sin. But the good news is that you don't have to. Look at verse 7, y'all. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David directs his attention to a priest that mediates, to a sacrifice that cleanses, to blood that covers. But you and I have a better priest. You and I have a better sacrifice. You and I have greater blood that covers a multitude of our sins. David had the bush of hyssop, but we have the tree on Calvary. That's the good news, that it has blossomed into its fullness what David could only see in shadow, we see in fullness in the, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, here is, this is such good news. God was rightfully angry at our rebellion, but he's never angry at our return. He's, he's angry at the rebellion of humanity, but he's never angry at our return. Come home. That's the message. Come home. As often as you leave home, God says, come home. You'll always find a father who's looking for the prodigal. You'll always find a love that cannot be exhausted for those who come back home. <laughs> That's good news. Don't sit out there and languish in, in your own destruction. Come home. Do you want to know how committed God is to welcoming sinners? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. The Son of God was revealed so that our sin no longer needs to be concealed. Listen, when your life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus, you no longer need to hide. Listen, here's the question. Are you hidden or are you hiding? That's what Colossians 3 is getting at. You're either hidden or you're hiding. And if you're hidden, you don't got to hide. You don't got to pretend. You don't got to fake the funk. You don't have to perform. You don't have to project something that's not real. You say, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, needing your mercy and your forgiveness, needing your abundant grace because of who I am, but I'm hopeful about it because of all you are. This is repentance. Once you own, here's more good news. Once you own your share in the guilt of the cross, you can claim your share in its grace. That comes from a book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. You should read it. It's fire. At the cross, we see what God thinks about sin. We see God's judgment with respect to our sins. Yes, even the ones we think are little. And once we begin to share God's 
perspective, God's judgment of our sins, then we can begin to share in the grace. We own the guilt that put God there. The Son of God was put there because of our sins. And it's not until you acknowledge that that you can own your share in the grace. Repentance is turning from the sin that required the cross to the love that inspired the cross. Turn from the sin that required the cross and be transformed by the love that inspired the cross. This is repentance. There is no sin so small that you don't need to repent. And there's no sin so great that you can't come back home in repentance. That's good news. Repentance lifts up the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. God is calling on us today, come home. Come home to my love. Come home to my grace and my care. Come home to my provision. Come home from your waywardness and the ugliness. God, listen, more good news. God is more willing to pardon your sin than you are to commit it. God is more willing to pardon your sin. Amen. I got a witness out here. God is more willing to pardon your sin than you are to commit your sin. Why don't you give it up and come home? Call it a day. Quit it. Quit it. Divorce it. Turn from it. It's all death out there and it's all life in God. The advent of Christ should lead us to repentance. The life and ministry of Christ should, hear, should, should lead us to hear him saying, come home. The sufferings of Christ are telling us to come home. The cross and atonement of Christ is telling us to come home. The burial of Christ is telling us to come home. The resurrection of Christ is telling us to come home. The ascension of Christ is telling us to come home. The current session and priestly ministry of Christ is telling us to come home. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is telling us to come home. And the promised return of Christ is telling us to come home. Don't delay. Don't delay. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Unless, unless you likewise repent, you too shall perish. And though everything in us calls for judgment, everything in Christ calls for mercy. So call on that mercy and look to him in faith, hope, and love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news that you welcome sinners. We don't like to be around people who have different politics from us, but you are willing to be around people who have an entirely different standard of morality because you want to change them. We get annoyed by people who make us wait in the grocery line too long, but you are patient and you wait on us saying, come home. So Lord, we pray that we'd be changed by the good news of your grace this morning, that we would repent and believe in the gospel, that we would repent because the kingdom as, is at hand. May a spirit of repentance prevail in this place, in this community, and may we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We ask that your spirit would be at work to prompt it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.